Hi, I'm Laura. And I'm Shelly. And together we co-host a podcast called Crime Scene Queens, which goes beyond the who, what, when, where, and why of true crime. We are forensic professionals here to cure you of that CSI effect. Expect unfiltered, fact-based banters about true stories from the field as we catch up and discuss autopsies, fingerprints, blood spatter, degloving, adipocere, and more terms you may or may not be familiar with. So follow us Crime Scene Queens on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Marbling. Trajectory. How to properly cut down a hangman's noose. Trace evidence. <laughs> You're so vanilla after mine. <laughs> Trace evidence. Cyanoacrylate fuming. AKA super glue fuming. I know, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of From the Vault right here on Anchor and wherever you can find your favorite podcast. I'm Jason Futch. Thank you all for joining us again as we talk about the Cheryl Catchigan case. And joining me is my co-host, my partner in crime, and the man who has been here since the beginning of From the Vault, Mr. Nick Wagler. How you doing, my friend? Oh, I am doing wonderful, enjoying the summer heat and humidity up in uh, good old uh, Wisconsin. Although, I mean, of course, you being in Florida, you're probably getting it a lot worse than I am. But yeah, like, I mean, I've left my house every day this week and there's been nothing but condensation on the windows every week on the back windows, side windows, front windows. I have to put my defrosters on just to make sure that it's not even there anymore because... I can't drive like that. That's miserable. Yeah, that's understandable. I feel like if that happened to me 24-7 when I was driving, I'd be too anxious to leave my house. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, but you and I, we were just hanging out just recently in Massachusetts with Nat Nash from Crime Time Nerds, and it was humid up there too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I will never forget the first morning waking up in that, that bunk bed of that Airbnb and just having trouble breathing from all the humidity and opening my window did not help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and that's Massachusetts for you in the summertime. That's Mm -hmm. also another region that does not believe in air conditioning. So, (laughs) so, but yeah. uh, And we're going to be talking more about that trip uh, at a later date because there's a lot to cover from that trip alone. I mean, absolutely. It was fun. We, we had an opportunity to catch up with Nat Nash from crime time nerds and, we actually got to hang out with uh, Anthony Lee Redgrave and Jesse Velstra from the Transdo Task Force or Redgrave Research, as most people may know them as. But like, holy cow, like we actually got to see how the sausage was made, so to speak. And um, it, it, it was a fun trip had by all. It's probably going to be one of them trips we'll never forget. And I, I don't think true crime podcasters ever rarely get this opportunity to communicate, to connect, and also be able to experience what we experienced that week. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a really incredible experience from what I remember. And, but, you know, after doing, you know, podcasting together since the end of 2019, it, I mean, it really wasn't like meeting somebody brand new for the first time. It was, yeah, you know, I guess I suppose the, the, face-to-face zoom meetings helped with that part but oh absolutely yeah Yeah. i mean it it definitely helped ease the tension because otherwise i think if we had just met each other out of the blue and only heard each other's voices 
I think there would probably be some anxiety. <laughs> I, I think yeah. the only person who didn't even know who we were was Nat's husband. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And Jason was just as cool too. I mean, they were they were all good people. I I've, yeah. I've I I had a great time, and I'm looking forward to the next uh, situation we have, in which I'm thinking Savannah possibly. I mean, nothing set in stone yet, but uh, it's going to be fun. I think for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to go ahead and get to the topic at hand tonight, and that is the Cheryl Katchigan case from 1996. Now. This is an interesting case because this is a relatively obscure case in the true crime community, meaning that there's really not much out there other than like maybe the website, the sheriff's office website in Highlands County. Or if you went to newspapers.com and you typed up her name, only one article pops up and it's in relation to her identification a few days after her discovery. And it's just really obscure because it's not well known in the community and the true crime community. And I personally would never have found out about Cheryl's case had it not been for her nephew, Steve, who is a good friend of mine who works for the Columbia County Sheriff's office as the public information officer. And Steve and I, we've worked together pretty frequently because I do make a lot of public records requests through the Columbia County Sheriff's office for their cold cases And that's because I've been working on a project with Swanee Valley Unsolved. And I just remember it was a month before I went to Louisiana to visit some relatives for Thanksgiving last year that I get a message from Steve at like 10 o'clock at night asking me if I would be interested in covering Cheryl's case because he knew that this was up my alley, that, uh, that cold cases are something that I was interested in. And I'm like, yeah, I don't mind looking into this. And so I started looking into it for Steve. And then for, you know, what we were granted an interview with uh, Lieutenant Brian Kramer from the Highlands County Sheriff's office. And then soon after we started communicating with Sergeant St. Lawrence, Sergeant Roger St. Lawrence of the Highlands County Sheriff's office. And it's been a great ride so far in uncovering Cheryl's case. And now we've got so much to cover in Cheryl's case because of that. Your thoughts, Nick? I think what's really great about the research process with this uh, episode was um, the fact that we were getting information from the investigative agencies, as well as those connected to the case, such as you being the family member. And uh, it reminds me of how we were able to put together the episode on, on the Wheatley's last season. And I think it's really, really important that cases that may not have a whole lot of information available publicly, whether it's on current websites affiliated with law enforcement or from archived newspapers, but at least bringing a case that has a few paragraphs on the county sheriff's website and one article on newspapers.com and expanding it out into an entire podcast episode is something that I think is really great that our podcast is doing because now she's getting the rightful attention that she always deserved, that people can hear her story. And it could, in fact, lead to more developments in the case if more people hear her story. And yeah, I mean, I and we really couldn't have done this without the help of the Highlands County Sheriff's Office and Lieutenant Kramer and Sergeant St. Laurent. They were the ones who've been able to help us get all the information we need. But we truly couldn't have done this episode without Stephen Catchigan, our friend 
at the sheriff's office. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I want to let you all know that Steve is actually our special guest here for this episode of From the Vault. So with that being said, I want to introduce you guys to my good friend, Stephen Catchigan. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing fine. How are y'all? Doing great. Thank you for uh, joining us here. Thanks for having me. So can you kind of give us some background on Cheryl? Sure. Yeah. Um, It was my dad's younger sister and she lived down in the Avon Park area and in Highlands County. So she stayed down there and and my dad and and our family, of course, lived up here. They weren't real close. uh, And and I can explain uh, some more of that as we go along, but there aren't a lot of local people here that probably knew that unless they were, you know, around our family during the time that this happened or, or close family, friends, things of that nature, because she did not live here. And so it was, it was not something that a lot of people here probably would have known. For sure. And yeah, cause I mean, like, I just remember when you messaged me, uh, you know, several months ago about this case, I was like, wow, it's, it's really, really interesting because at least now when I communicate with you about some of these cold cases, at least you kind of know where I'm coming from in sure. regards to this. Cause you're, you're working closely with detectives over at the sheriff's office, but also you had a personal tragedy. Well, your family had a very personal tragedy sure. that still is open today. Sure. So, um, and yeah, and, and I'm, we're honored to be able to share Cheryl's story to the rest of the world. I mean, we've got a great follower, uh, following audience and, and it's going to be an interesting episode, I think, especially as we go along and start throwing some bombs out there about, you know, sure. who may be involved and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, uh, you'd mentioned about, you know, me messaging you that, that evening and letting you know the, the case there. I'll have to say, as I'm getting older, uh, you kind of, when, when something comes into your mind, you kind of act on it then. So you don't forget later. And, uh, it, you know, it had come across, uh, as something. And again, I I never met her personally. So I, I had no personal relationship, uh, with her. Um, and this happened when I was roughly 10 years old. So I was fairly young at the time and, uh, I have some memories of the situation and, and, and what I was told and, and, and how uh, all that transpired. But in terms of something that, that had been on my mind every day, I can't say that that was necessarily the case because, uh, you know, there was not a mo- an emotional attachment there per se, uh, other than the fact that obviously uh, with my father, even though there there were some things there that they didn't necessarily talk every day and, and there wasn't, uh, in some aspects, a, a closeness there. Uh, there is that emotional attachment and, and collaborating with you on some of these cold cases, you know, hit closer to home when you think about it. And, and that memories jog for whatever reason, uh, we think of things randomly sometimes. So oh, I have a connection with a cold case. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was actually honored that you, you know, brought it up with me because um, I, and that was actually at a point where Nick and I were starting to research more cases to see what we could cover mm-hmm. um, in season two. And so we thought this would definitely be a good inclusion to our list because uh, it definitely has a lot of backstory more than probably what many people know and and probably even your own family. Because I mean, we I mean, I remember when you and I sat down with Lieutenant Kramer back in November 
we probably found way more stuff out in just that meeting than probably y'all have in over 20 years. Yeah. I, I quite frankly have not until we talked with Lieutenant Kramer. What I remembered from that incident was strictly uh, my recollection uh, from childhood memories, essentially. So uh, having worked at the sheriff's office for as long as I have now um, and having some different experiences here, uh, it kind of made me curious and, and want to know uh, kind of an update and uh, looking at it through a law enforcement lens, as opposed to the, the lens of a child that's just kind of hearing bits and pieces and, and not really having any other answers. Uh, and, and understandably, you know, our, our family not really having a lot of answers when, when a case runs cold. So Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, you know, in cold cases like this, uh, and even in some of the local cases that I'll be covering, you know, it might be years before law enforcement can offer an update. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, when there's no news to give, it makes the family feel like, well, they done gave up on us. They done, you know, there's nothing more they could do. So they're just giving up on this and they're just going to close the books. But <laughs> they don't realize, you know, you guys are still working it behind the scenes. And, sure. and I think, in your aspect, because you're just talking about the law enforcement perspective in Cheryl's case, you can understand probably why this case is still open to this day. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and that's one thing, too. Um, different agencies, and we talked about this with uh, Lieutenant Kramer, you know, different mm -hmm. agencies have different resources. Right. Uh, larger agencies may have detectives who, who do nothing but work cold cases full time, and smaller agencies. Mm -hmm don't necessarily have those resources. And so if a case runs cold, sometimes those cases could could take a backseat to something that's right in front of them that, that they have to deal with immediately. You know, it's not to say that, that we forget about them or that, you know, they're any less important. It's just sometimes that, you know, you got to follow the leads that are in front of you uh, whenever they're available. And, and with cold cases, unfortunately, sometimes those leads are few and far between. Uh, so it certainly does, you know, mean a lot when some, when you can, you know, work on something and bring some closure to a family, but I certainly understand it from the, the family side that you kind of wonder what's going on with the case, but at the same time, having the law enforcement background, uh, and understanding too, kind of how that works, that there's no less passion from law enforcement about the case. It's, it's just simply, you know, doing what we can within our means, at times to investigate. And I and I think that was really well put because, you know, there there are a lot of misconceptions, you know, from true crime enthusiasts alongside even the families of victims who they don't hear anything about how the investigation is progressing and it kind of they kind of jump to conclusions that, you know, people have given up on on uh, you know, looking into the case, but with you being on both sides through your experience, I think that really clarifies a lot of things. And, and, and hopefully that'll, you know, answer questions for people in the future that are listening or those who, you know, might be thinking that this case is just collecting dust and, and nobody cares anymore. It's, it's not the case. And sure. Yeah. And even, even smaller agencies, you know, they may not have someone full time exactly uh, that, that they can devote to cold cases, but I can tell you, like with ours, um, you know, some of our detectives or even some of the supervisors in the detective division, they will a lot of times be the ones that, that go and get these cold cases and review them uh, periodically and, and make sure that nothing has been missed up to that point. So, you know, they 
agencies work within their means and and they have their own challenges uh, that are specific to mm-hmm. uh, their agency but uh, even even smaller agencies who who don't have a ton of resources will oftentimes have people that will still go and review these cold cases periodically and and just see if anything else can be done or just try something else, be it through DNA or anything, just to try to get updates. Sometimes, uh, you know, the families may not all, always know that. It could be that, that they might have just missed a phone call or something like that, or, or maybe, you know, the detective got sidetracked. Uh, so there's a lot of things that just go on that, again, not, not to minimize, you know, communication with families and the importance of that, but uh, just because you don't hear from a detective every day or uh, every year doesn't necessarily mean that they're not still working on that and that they've forgotten about it. Exactly. And I know, too, a lot of times people working the case cannot even release information to anybody outside of the agency because they, sure. can't, they can't risk a breach of, of whatever uh, lead they're pursuing, too. And sure. that's, that's definitely something to keep in mind as well. Absolutely. The uh, integrity of an investigation is really so important. You know, if you lose that, then then you risk losing the case in court if, if you can get mm-hmm. to that point. So uh, it would really uh, not be beneficial and, and it would be the opposite. And as, as hard as it is sometimes, I'm sure, for detectives to to withhold information that they might even want to share with the family just to give them some hope. Sometimes that integrity is is what's being protected because they know that if if the wrong information gets out too soon, then this could jeopardize the investigation. And, and that's the last thing they want uh, is for, for all that effort and, and the work that goes into bringing uh, some closure to a family and, and justice to a suspect to be lost on a technicality. So that is a good point. So Steve, um, Tell us a little bit about Cheryl based on some of the stories from your father, because, I mean, you know, from what you told me, she grew up in New York and for the most part had a a good life. Right. As far as her childhood goes, uh, you know, I was talking with my father today. His grandparents lived here in Columbia County, and that was the connection to Lake City and Columbia County. And he grew up in New York in the Bronx, and uh, it was his mother's parents that lived here. And they lived, they had a farm in Columbia City. And so every summer they would come down to the farm and that was their vacation. And that's what they looked forward to. And that's kind of how he made connections uh, here in Columbia County. So they would come down to the farm and and, and a lot of his memories um, were, as, as a child, uh, some of his best memories were probably during those times. He recalled a story where Cheryl... Uh, climbed a holly tree uh, on the farm there and, and then couldn't get down. And his dad had to go up and rescue her. You know, of course, back then, we hear lots of conversations nowadays, especially about gun control and things like that. But back then, you could go down to the the uh, corner store and and buy a kid could buy 22 ammo, you know. And, and so a lot of his childhood and vacation, you know, was – uh, hunting with neighborhood boys, you know, with 22, um, 
shooting frogs in a pond, taking them back to his grandmother to, to fry frog legs, you know. So uh, one story that I remember my grandmother uh, shared with me and, and my dad was when they were walking on a dirt road there. And this was this was an area of Itchtuckney Avenue, um, so in, in that part of the county. But they were walking down the road, and, and Cheryl uh, about stepped on a rattlesnake. And, and my father shot it, you know, with the twenty two. And, and of course, you know, they couldn't have been terribly old at the time. Uh, but, you know, it, it was just a different. Of course, we, we know society's changed, you know, times have changed, but it was a different time back then. And, and really, when you think about, uh, you know, the, the type of environment that existed, then it, it really is, is kind of neat to think about. Um, and, and, and you look at how things have changed and there's been some, some, some positive changes over time, but, uh, you know, you kind of look back to, to when things were much simpler and, and that's just kind of a, uh, part of the normal childhood that, that I would say, uh, was, was their reality then. So, so what brought Cheryl to Florida and, and, and Cheryl's a little older than your father, right? She was younger. Okay. And I know that ultimately she would move down to Florida. Uh, what prompted her to move to Florida to be closer to some of the Florida relatives? Uh, my, my speculation is so my, my grandparents moved to Avon Park. And so at some point, um, I don't know if she moved at the same time, but my grandparents lived in Avon Park and then, and Cheryl, of course, did too. Um, after my grandfather passed away, he died about, I'm assuming around a year or so before I was born even. So, um, after my grandfather passed away, uh, several years later, my grandmother moved to Lake city uh, and Cheryl stayed down in Avon park. I don't know if this might be something we discuss later on, but from, from what, you know, um, what sort of a, I guess, a lifestyle did she, did she lead? Because I know kind of like the inner, you know, uh, armchair detective part of my brain kind of immediately jumps to uh, victimology and maybe why this might have happened. Because I know a lot of times, a lot of investigations go towards, you know, looking into the victim's personal life, their connections, how they lived, um, etc. And I remember Googling Cheryl and the only, uh, the only information that came up about her was just a very brief uh, little blurb on the sheriff's website. So, you know, I, I had nowhere to go and I you know, I come into this podcast uh, session not knowing, you know, what what type of theory should I have when I when I come into this, and so I don't know if there's anything that maybe you would know that you're able to to discuss or or along the sure. lines of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, to your question, Nick, as far as uh, the the lifestyle that Cheryl had um, as a child, uh, she she suffered from a seizure disorder, and so. She had some some health issues with some seizures. My understanding as a result uh, of some of the seizure medications, you know, some of those were were pretty intense. Yeah, I work in a pharmacy, so I, I know that. <laughs> yeah, so, so you can imagine probably since childhood being on those types of medications and some of the side effects that those mm -hmm. can cause. At some point in time, because of, of that, uh, more than likely, she developed some type of mental illness, and so she was somewhat estranged from from our family, which is why I, I never really met her. 
I have I have no memories of her. I've seen pictures and I've heard those childhood stories mm-hmm. from her childhood, but I don't have any personal memories of her. My guess is is just she she kind of wanted to be to herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding she was just kind of that loner type. Just kind of did her thing. And when my grandmother lived in Avon Park, I think she would have some communication with her periodically. At the time that Cheryl uh, was was murdered, uh, my grandmother was already living up here in Lake City. So uh, my grandmother was not down there at the time. So Cheryl really kind of just stayed to herself. We didn't have really uh, much communication with her, if any. And, you know, that was kind of the background that I had referred to earlier with, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a child, even even that far back, just having that struggle medically with that condition, uh, which, you know, led to to the, those types of medications that mm-hmm. she needed to be put on to stop the seizures, uh, which in turn probably uh, segued into to some mental health issues. Yeah. And that's, that's really understandable, like as to, you know, how, how things like that can affect somebody in, in long-term field. And, and it's just, it's just a really sad thing, I guess, to think of yeah. how, you know, that sort of drove her to, to be more, what's the word? Um, <laughs> I guess more of, more of just a, you know, the loner type, as you mentioned, sure. and that lack of, of communication that is the result of, you know, preferring to be keeping to yourself, um, I guess prevents you guys from really maybe knowing what could have happened to some extent. And I mean, I guess now that you're, you're in, in the law enforcement field, it's a little different per se. Yeah. But. Well, and, and, and I don't know if, if Jason will get into this at some point during this podcast, but uh, when we were talking with Lieutenant Kramer and he was uh, sharing with us some of the, their investigative details in terms of, you know, what witnesses said during that time, it shed some light on things that I, I did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people that she did associate with at the time were interviewed after, after she was discovered and, you know, had had said that she had hitchhiked pretty much everywhere she went. She didn't drive, and she hitchhiked everywhere she went. And some of the people that that knew her had, I guess, expressed concern over the years because she had expressed prior concern to them about something happening to her. And and don't know if that was, you know, a, a premonition, if you will, or some type of just paranoia. But um, she had expressed. That apparently to other people that um, she felt like there was some type of danger lurking ar- around her. And when other people mentioned to her about the dangers of hitchhiking and aren't you afraid of, of, of getting kidnapped or something bad happening to you, her response was, you know, well, if, if, if that happens, I'll just fake a seizure. And so that kind of gives you, I guess a little glimpse into the thought process, um, you know, just kind of her, her way of looking at the situation. Yeah. And, and that was just kind of how, how, uh, she, she viewed it. And, you know, Nick, I think you might know where I'm about to go with this, but you know what case that reminds me of a little bit? You'll probably have to explain it. Cause I've got a, I've got a bunch, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joseph Newton Chandler. 
the mm, the, yeah. the paranoia factor. I mean, because you re- remember in some of the case notes on that one, you know, he expressed that someone was out to get him, that mm-hmm. he locked his doors every night. He, he didn't. Wasn't he also carrying too? if I remember right? I don't I don't recollect reading whether or not he had anything mm-hmm. like that. But, um, yeah, no, I know definitely like because he had that paranoia. That does sort of make sense as to why it was speculated he was maybe a violent fugitive right. uh, prior to his ad- identification. But I, I can remember, I don't remember the the victims by name, but I, I do recall, you know, this has happened several times where people have had that, you know, paranoia. Sometimes they can't explain it and then something happens. And one, one that really jumped to my mind was the, the Tammy Lynn Liepert case, which uh, just recently hit its 39th anniversary. And I remember reading and and watching episodes where, you know, she possibly saw something she wasn't supposed to have and, and just deteriorated after that mentally. And there's, you know, there's that, but I guess it's still um, the way, the way that Cheryl looked at it is, you know, she had a plan at least. And um, unfortunately, I guess it doesn't seem like it was enough to save her life when um, the event happened. But I, I guess I sort of feel too that when you don't have a vehicle, you got to get from point A to point B. You kind of have to to make certain choices and decisions, and you know some of them might not be you know as safe as as they should be. And you know this was you know this was quite a quite a while ago, almost thirty years now. And you know it, a lot of people hitchhiked. I mean, maybe not as extreme as you know I, all the stories I hear about cold cases from you know, the seventies where everybody was hitchhiking, but it was, it was a different, a different time. And a lot of different people had, uh, I guess, less of a, a fear of that. Right. And, and you also have to remember too, just based on some of the stories that I'm hearing about Cheryl, it sounded like she could have been also vulnerable as an adult. So it's Absolutely. like, it's like, you know, when you're, when you're hitchhiking and stuff like that, yeah, sometimes the plan that you have in mind may not be the plan that's going to come out. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. especially when we get into this story a little bit deeper, you know, we kind of do discuss it a little bit about, you know, her thoughts or premonitions of her own death and stuff like that. So when you, when you deal with someone who has had mental issues, you know, they can be taken advantage of. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. this appears to be one of those situations. Wouldn't you agree, Steve? Yeah, I would say that that is definitely a uh, strong, strong factor that could could be a possibility because, again, you know, you never know the thought process, but you do have someone who who has a a different worldview or a different way of looking at the world, and and again, kind of going back again, this was a long time ago, but. We've seen the world and society change so much since then, not to mention probably what her uh, bringing up. You know, we look at the Bronx as kind of a rough place, but but you look at at New York back then, uh, it was a different time. It's probably nothing like it is today. And you look at, you know, coming down here on vacations and coming to even Highlands County at the time, probably a fairly rural area it was probably just a different different time and and maybe people's guards in general were not 
were not up as much because, yeah. you know, you, you didn't have the things that we see on the news today. At right. least you didn't you didn't hear about them as often yeah. because of, of social media and, and how accessible it is to find information now. You didn't have that then. So if you were living in a fairly, fairly rural area, mm-hmm. I could see where someone's thought process might be it's safe to hitchhike, you know, because yeah. nothing happens here. I, I was in Clewiston down in Hendry County. And even today, like in 2022, it's not really developed. Like it's still pretty rural, even for a town that probably has about maybe 40,000 people in it. Like, I could have literally just parked my truck in the middle of town and and no one would have bothered me. So like, mm-hmm. um, and, and Hendry and Highlands are like right next to each other. So it's like, it's probably still somewhat the same. It's still pretty rural and Sebring and Highlands. And, and I don't really go to Highlands much. I drive through it when I'm going to like Punta Gorda or something from Lakeland. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's still a pretty rural area. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, and I can understand that because, uh, when I took a look at the newspaper clipping in regards to this case, I did a Google map search of where Cheryl lived at the time. And the neighborhood is fairly quiet looking. I mean, it's not like super busy. I mean, that whole area is still rural. So I can see she probably had some comfortability knowing that no- nothing like that's ever going to happen to her. Yeah, it could very well be. And um, like I, that reminds me too. I mean, like I, I live in a small town of less than 8,000 and last year, a former corker and a classmate of mine was, uh, was killed uh, not far from where, where I lived within the next township over, which was probably less than a 10 minute drive. And thankfully the suspect's in custody now and is awaiting trial, but it never really, I guess, hits you how something so serious and so devastating could happen in this really rural, quiet area. I mean, depending on, you know, other circumstances, but, but yeah, a lot of times you have this kind of false sense of security when you, you really don't know necessarily what kind of people could be hiding in the shadows. So Steve, tell me about the last time the family had heard from Cheryl. I don't know when the last time would have been that that anyone from the family heard from her uh more than likely she she probably had more contact with my grandmother than anyone and i'm not sure when the last time was that that would have been i do know that that when my grandmother was living there uh, she would have some contact with her i'm not sure if it was on a weekly basis or what but I think there would be some type of communication, either by phone or if she would have seen her in person uh, from time to time. But I'm not sure exactly when anyone uh, in my immediate family would have had contact with her last. I'm not sure that my dad uh, had any kind of recent contact with her prior to this. Okay. So so essentially, the last time she had been heard from or even seen I guess this is going to be based on police reports where she was last seen around Christmas, 1995. Uh, I believe if I remember it was December 22nd was the last time she'd been actually physically seen. And, and this is, you know, winter time in Florida where it's not too cold and it's also not too hot either. It's still in between. And, and there's a reason I bring that up and I'll, as we go along, I'll explain the reason, but like, 
that's between the time of December 22nd to January 10th is a long stretch without any kind of contact. And, um, and, you know, and as we've, you know, gone through, you know, Cheryl wasn't necessarily close with the family. And so essentially her probably not even reaching out on Christmas was probably normal. Right. I would say that would just be par for the course. There would have been nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been nothing there that would have stood out as being unusual. Sure. I don't, even on holidays, Christmas, I don't ever remember a time that, that I can think of where we even had any phone contact with her. So mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't have been anything that would have, I would say, looking at it at this point would have been any alarm to us at all because that was just somewhat normal. Last time she was seen Christmas Day, and then January 10th, 1996 goes around. We've already done gone through Christmas. We've gone through the new year and no one had seen Cheryl around. And then one day near the landfill in Highlands County in Sebring, a guy was installing mailboxes along Scrub Pens Road. As he was installing the mailboxes, he comes across the body of a woman who had been found partially nude. She was face down in a ditch. And her shirt and bra had been pulled up over her torso and her upper chest had been exposed. And a pair of socks were also located near her feet. And what it appears is that she didn't have any clothing, like any pants or any underwear on. And they were never able to locate that clothing. And so I remember when they had discovered this body, they thought that this could have been a runaway teenage girl who was 16 at the time of her disappearance. And ironically, her name was also Cheryl. They, they speculated that this was possibly her because her safety had been called into question due to the circumstances. And later on, you know, obviously it was determined that the woman was not the teen. And in fact, uh, when I did a little bit digging later on, I found out that she had indeed been located and then she ran away again. And then she was located again in New York. So um, she's okay, but they're like, yeah, this is definitely not her because this body appears to be an older woman. And after the woman's autopsy, it was determined that the body was that of Cheryl Catchigan. And uh, she was 46 at the time of her death and uh, had been living in Avon Park. But despite all this, the medical examiner was unable to determine how Cheryl died, but they did certainly rule that this was going to be a suspicious incident because you don't just wander up and down a street with no pants on and, you know, flashing everybody. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. do that. Uh, and carrying your socks. I mean, this was obviously something suspicious. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, Steve? Oh, yeah. And looking at it from kind of an investigative standpoint as well, even though, even though Florida is not New York, uh, it can be pretty chilly you know, yeah. in, in the wintertime and especially during that time of year, it would not be normal. It certainly sounds like to me, even though, even though Cheryl hitchhiked on a, a regular basis, walking around nude or, or anything like that without the proper clothing on for the elements would have been something that would have been completely um, out of character right. for her if that was something that was on her own accord so it it would seem to me as though um 
you know, the location where she was found was perhaps not where she died. Right. And that she was, uh, because again, missing the whole, um, you know, bottom half of your clothing, to my understanding, they never found that. So, you know, that to me would, would stand to reason that she was killed somewhere else. And mm-hmm. then the body was discarded where she was located. Right. And yeah. also, you know, and then we also think about the autopsy report too, uh, where there was an inconclusive death, well, an inconclusive determination as to how she died. Um, you also have to remember too, uh, she'd been missing a long span, you know, between the 22nd and the 10th. So even in Florida in December, it still gets pretty hot during the day. And she probably mm-hmm. uh, suffered from severe decomposition um, in that regard. And and when that happens, it's really hard to, to determine a death. And, you know, it's I mean, there's a case in Swanee County right now, uh, uh, Jill Carter, where they had found her body. Um, she had been in the elements for two weeks and they don't even know how she died, but they know it was a murder just based right. on where she was found. So, I mean, crazy yeah. case. And in, in Nick. Yeah, like I definitely have to agree that in, that, you know, even though even though a death cause was not determined for me, for sure. The, the fact that she's found along a roadside face down, whether or not she was fully clothed or not, it's definitely a big red flag that there's something sinister going on. And, you know, I think you mentioned uh, she'd been found kind of near a dumping ground. And that's, that's also a very popular thing for, offenders to dispose of their bodies uh, dispose of their victims near are you know landfills or places that you know there are other smells going on that might cover up uh what's uh what's there and i when i think about how it seems like she was identified fairly quickly i i think that's honestly kind of a, a good thing to think about because with the there are so many cases where someone disappears at you know an uncertain time who isn't always in close contact with family that she was she was found and identified you know within a reasonable amount of time you know like reminds me of like a a doe case in the making and thankfully that's not the case when you know they were able to at least determine who she was quickly and that the the elements hadn't hindered that that determination at least well and i think there there may have been if and and don't quote me on this um, because this is kind of speculation from recollection, which, yeah. you know, is, is certainly probably not the greatest uh, that long ago. But uh, I want to say that maybe dental records were used at the okay. medical examiner's office to help identify. I'm not positive on that. But as Jason mentioned, and this just is kind of something to um you know, to think about as well as, you know, when, when her body was found, there was some speculation, I guess, of it possibly being a 16 year old girl in the area who had run away. And obviously Cheryl was, was much older than that. So it does just kind of tell you the, the stage of decomposition to where, you know, you know, it had to be determined later on the Mm -hmm. exact identity because, um, at that point, again, even in December, January, uh, in Florida, uh, if you're out in the elements for two weeks or so, uh, there, there's going to mm-hmm. be some, some advanced decomposition. And so, 
that's uh, that's just one of the things to consider. But whenever we talk to Lieutenant Kramer, that's a question that I had asked um, because in, in speaking with my father about this, I asked him because my understanding as a child, even hearing about this was that the circumstances were that, that she was raped and murdered. That's in my mind what, what I recalled uh, based on what was what was I either overheard or communicated to me whenever this happened. Um, and so I had always lived with with that impression of, of, of how she she died. And uh, so I asked Lieutenant Kramer uh, because later on my, my father clarified that the medical examiner could not determine an exact cause of death. So I did ask Lieutenant Kramer that to clarify and say, hey, are you, would y'all still look at this as a homicide or is there a possibility this could have been something else and it just you couldn't rule anything out at this point? He said, right. oh, no, we're it's, it was a homicide. So it seemed yeah. to be that even though, um, you know, we don't know all of the details and whatnot, mm-hmm. And again, going back to there may be things that are known to them that, that can't be shared mm-hmm. with us. Uh, they feel pretty confident uh, that it was a homicide. So, yeah. And that's as I was going to say, you know, as you know, based on the circumstances of her discovery, um, where she was located, what she was found wearing, what she wasn't wearing. That is the first thought that comes to anybody's head is that this is actually motivated crime. And, you know, the next the next likeliest scenario, which I still think is stretching it, is that, you know, what if, you know, there could have been a, a chance of somebody, you know, in, in an altered mental state, whether they were in a psychotic episode or potentially um, after a night, you know, of intoxication. Um, not that I'm at all saying this is what, what happened, but, you know, I guess the way the way it sounds is it seems significantly less plausible for that to have happened to where she would have been altered enough to have, you know, taken off her, her shoes, socks, uh, pants, and, and just walked around to the dump where she fell face down and, and just died. Yeah. And, and, and that's one thing too, is, is I'm not personally familiar with the area, but in speaking with Lieutenant Kramer, uh, it seems to me that, that it is pretty much in the middle of nowhere. You have the landfill, nearby but it didn't sound like to me that there was much out there and and that's another thing that i would think about would be if she were walking if she were hitchhiking um you'd seem to have some type of destination other than the Mm -hmm. landfill or or something if you were trying to get somewhere it's probably not in the middle of nowhere so uh again it just to me Again, the the state of decomp- decomposition could have played a factor in not being able to determine an exact cause of death. That is certainly plausible, especially with advanced decomposition. You're not going to find all the answers necessarily. You're not right. going to know. You're not going to have as much forensic um, evidence available mm-hmm. in terms of DNA and things like that if uh, a body's left out in the elements for, for so long. And so... Uh, there are going to be some a- unanswered questions in terms of some of those things, unless it's very obvious and, and you've got, you know, skull fractures or something like that that you can mm-hmm. determine. Mm-hmm. But um, 
other other types of injuries are probably going to be hard to determine with an advanced uh, state of decomposition. And so uh, if that's the case, then um, you know, we may not know an exact cause of death, but I would feel based on our conversation with Lieutenant Kramer and the circumstances of, of what we do know, uh, I would say, you know, that, that I would feel pretty comfortable as well saying it's a homicide sure. at this point. Just a little bit ago, we were talking about, you know, Cheryl's mental health at that point and, you know, the stages of her mental health up to the uh, time leading up to her death. And it was apparently well documented that, you know, she was taking medicine. She suffered from epilepsy uh, because what we did, what we do know is that at first investigators did think that perhaps Cheryl did have an epilepsy episode just because, you know, she was on medication, but then at the same time, it's like, um, well, but she had no pants on. She had socks next to her. She, her breasts were bare and she's out here in the middle of nowhere. I don't think this was just any epilepsy episode. I mean, if you think about it from another perspective though, what if she was hanging out with somebody Mm-hmm. She did have an episode and then they got scared because they just died. She just died on them and disposed of her body in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's an option. Cause I mean, we look at the Courtney Dubois case over in West Virginia, she had suffered. I know it's not the same situation, but she had suffered uh, a, an overdose of um, fentanyl and the and the people who gave it to her were next to her when she suffered from that uh, overdose and they were afraid oh shit you know we've got we got somebody who just OD'd on us what do we do what do we do well they thought the best thing to do would have been dismember her and throw her in a in a landfill in Cartersville Georgia that that's unfortunate because like I mean, it's the thing is is that you can't be scared to call the police if you have an issue like this i mean yeah. If they suffered, you know, health issues, call the police. Just let them know. Hey, look, she just suffered an epilepsy episode. Don't get scared and just dump her out in the middle of nowhere and make everyone think that she was killed. You know, you you understand where I'm coming mm-hmm. from on that? Yeah, that 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 does make sense. And and I would say, you know, there there are incidents that happen that that are very similar to that, um, where maybe. Maybe there's some other activity going on, you know, drug activity, things like that. For whatever reason, people get scared. And, mm-hmm. and so they just, you know, try to try to remove themselves as far away as possible from the situation. Is it a possibility? I guess it could be. Um, yeah. You know, we, we don't know that for sure. But, right. uh, you know, and, and that's that's one of the things that if, if I'm being fair and 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 reasonable you you have to consider everything correct um again i don't know everything that that the detectives down there know right so it's hard to speculate if there are other things that that lead them to believe that you know to say emphatically that that this is a homicide right um but at the same time it without knowing that i could say well you know that there are times where where things like that do happen. People panic and and they make bad decisions instead mm-hmm. of just being up front and calling law enforcement or calling nine one one to to try to get some help for somebody. So, um, you know, I would say it's not 
out of the realm of possibility, knowing what what little bit I do know. Right. And but then also, too, you do take into the factor that she didn't have any clothes on. So. Uh, or barely had clothes on. So it's and, like now also you definitely have to look into a possible sex crime here too, mm-hmm. um, because it appears that way, but mm-hmm. there was also no evidence of trauma, you know, down there. And so, you know, but, and that could also be as a result of the decomposition that occurred. So there wasn't really a record of rape in this situation. I guess what I was thinking is, you know, that I guess is a possibility that, you know, maybe this was a medical issue that ended up being severe enough to where she died. Yet what really makes me doubt this idea is that, yes, she was nude from the waist down, but, you know, her shirt and her bra had been um, pulled up over her body, which to me seems very unlikely for somebody who is scared and decides to dump a body who isn't responsible for any criminal activity besides, uh, you know, leaving the crime scene, yeah, etc. So that I, I think that's sort of one thing that's worth mentioning as well. Sure, I I completely agree with that. I mean, honestly, and Nick, you know this, and Steve, professionally, you know this. I mean, all all bets are off when it comes to speculations because it could be anything. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you really don't know until you find out. And, um, you know, as we go along in this episode, uh, you know, there's some twists and turns here. So, And that will do it for part one of the Cheryl Katchigan case. Join us next week as we continue the discussion into Cheryl's case. And we start talking about some of the persons of interest that might be involved in this investigation and what investigators are doing to attempt to solve Cheryl's case. I'm Jason Futch, and on behalf of Nick Wagler, I want to thank you for listening to today's episode of From the Vault. We will be back next week. Thank you so much. From the Vault, a true crime podcast is a JPF production. This episode was written, edited, and directed by Jason Futch. The information used for this episode was provided to us by Stephen Katchigan, with case information provided to us by Roger St. Laurent and Brian Kramer of the Highlands County Sheriff's Office in Florida. Our opening theme is Sinister by Anno Domini Beats. Our closing theme is Sinister Cathedral by Asher Fulero. If you have questions concerning this episode or previous episodes, or may have a general question, please reach out to us at jpfproductionslead at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode.